from our scripture reading this morning, beginning in Galatians 2, verse 19. Galatians 2, verse 19. For I, through the law, am dead to the law, that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, that is in my body, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not frustrate or set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness come by the law, then Christ is dead with no purpose, no result, worthless or in vain. So my title is simply, I am crucified with Christ. What does that mean? How is Paul dead to the law? And what are the implications of that? How does the law itself make Paul dead to itself so that he can live unto God? And uh, the implications of how that works itself out for you and I today. How are we dead to the law? How are we crucified to Christ? And then what does that union with Christ mean for us today? I think it's important to establish a little context here because we often use that verse, rightfully so. We pull it out of context and preach the truth of it, but we see what Paul's doing in context. He's using this statement as a transition to go into the truth of justification by grace, by Christ alone and through faith, as opposed to justification by the law. And to start with, he does that, as we noted last Sunday, he shows his apostolic authority and his revelation was received not from men, not even from the apostles, but from God himself. So the first two chapters are bringing Paul to this place of chapter 2 and 3 to launch out into the truth of justification, which they've deviated from, first by showing that Paul's gospel was not from men, because these men from James, how they're from James, we don't exactly know. doesn't mean James approved of them, but these Judaizers were bringing a gospel that was another gospel, and using that to tear down Paul's ministry because he was instrumental by God to establish the churches of Galatia, primarily Gentile churches. Now they're turning to circumcision as a way of justification and as a way of sanctification before God. So what Paul does masterfully in chapter 2, beginning in about the 12th verse, where he certifies, uh, wants the, the brethren to know in verse 11, he wants them to know with objective evidence his apostolic authority didn't come from men and his revelation came from Christ. So just to note a few, he said, You've heard of my conversation or lifestyle. Now notice how objective that is. All you churches of Galatia, you don't have to hear it from me. You have heard from other people. My conversation, what's Paul doing? He's establishing apostolic authority, not subjectively. This is what I say. Not subjectively, but objectively. This is what others are saying about me. So that establishes Paul's authority, not just from what he says, If all you have is what you say, that's kind of shaky ground, isn't it? But you've heard this miraculous conversion that proves the point 
that no one leaves a life of great gain for a life of suffering unless God has dealt with them. Next, he says, I immediately conferred not with flesh and blood. I didn't go to Jerusalem. Three years I went out into Arabia. During that time, Paul's gospel was being well developed by revelation from Jesus Christ. So he didn't straight go to the apostles and say, tell me about your gospel. He went three years out into the Arabia. Then just for 15 days, he came to meet Peter. Now there's no way in 15 days you can get from Peter the gospel of justification as Paul lays out in the book of Romans. It's pretty complex. No, he just went there to meet Peter and then he left. You can ask Peter what we did. You don't have to ask me. Peter wasn't giving me his gospel. I just went to meet Peter. Then all the churches in Judea, when they heard, now that I was preaching the faith that I once destroyed. So just go ask Jerusalem Christians and the churches of the region of the Jewish people, Judea, and they'll tell you, I have been preaching the true gospel, which I once destroyed. There's another set of objective proof that Paul's authority, the gospel he's preaching, didn't come from men. Because that's what they were saying. Then 14 years later, chapter 2, he went to Jerusalem finally, lest he had run in vain. In other words, he didn't get it from men or the apostles, but it needs to be in agreement with the apostles' gospel. They got it from Jesus. Paul got it from Jesus, so they should agree. So Paul goes up to see if he's been running in vain. He brings the gospel that he knows from Christ, and he shares it with the apostles. Now, they added nothing to Paul's gospel, he said. Rather, when they perceived the grace of God in Paul, what did they say? You go and take the gospel to the uncircumcised Gentiles. Peter will take it to the Jews. And they gave Paul and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. Now, Paul is telling the churches of Galatia, he's giving them objective evidence to refute the Judaizers, which are what? He's not an apostle. He just got it from men. He wasn't one of the first twelve. Well, he wasn't, but he didn't get it from men, as proof in chapter 1. And he even didn't get it from the apostles. Yet, it's in full agreement with the apostles by their own testimony, because they gave him the right hand of fellowship. Then, furthermore, in chapter 2, Paul showing that he's not a men-pleaser, as he pointed out in about the 6th or 7th verse of chapter 1. If he seeks to please men, he's no longer pleasing God. He goes to the very chief apostle or at least Peter, the one that had great influence, Peter, James, and John, Jesus was with them the most, and he rebukes him, and he confronts Peter to his face. Now, you don't do that if you're trying to please men. But Paul does it. He rebukes Peter because Peter, who would eat with the Gentiles, fellowship with the Gentiles, now separated and withdrew himself because when these Judaizers came around in Jerusalem, Peter was afraid, Peter played the hypocrite, and Peter separated himself. He had a lapse of faith, and Paul rebukes Peter. Because Peter was walking out of sync with the truth of the gospel. And those things are out of sync with the gospel, aren't they? To fear man is out of sync with the sovereign rule of Jesus through the gospel. To play the hypocrite is out of sync with who Jesus is for us, not only in private, but also in 
public and to separate from other Christians out of this sphere is out of sync with gospel truth. So Paul uses this then to confront Peter by saying, we ourselves as Jewish Christians, we were born Jews unlike the sinners of the Gentiles. We were born being spoon-fed the law. And yet we ourselves know the law can justify nobody. We are justified by faith of Jesus Christ. That's verse 16. Then in verse 17, But if while we seek to be justified by Christ, we ourselves also are found sinners, is therefore Christ the minister of sin? God forbid. Now, Paul is still confronting Peter before them all concerning the idea that you can be circumcised to be saved. Now, Peter never believed this, you understand. But he was caught in with the Judaizers in dissimulating also Barnabas and others of the Jews. And so he's saying this in the ears of Peter for the sake of those around Peter that were drawn and the Gentiles who were being drawn into that way of thinking. And so what does Paul mean in verse 17? He means we as Jewish Christians, we were born with the law, we have set aside the law for justification. Now, if we try to go back to the law and we're found like Gentile sinners without the law, does that mean Christ is the minister of sin? Well, it would be, wouldn't it? Because He gave us the gospel of justification by faith. He told us the law is no more. And now, if we go back to the very thing Jesus revealed that is not true, Jesus is the one that kind of pushed us into sin, isn't He? It's His gospel. A very good argument, God forbid. Next, Paul would say, and we're leading to the context of this sermon, if I build again the things which I destroy, I myself am making me a transgressor. So Paul has been destroying the idea that a man can be just by doing works of the law. Now, if he starts building that legal system all over again, he's going to make himself a transgressor because he's abandoned the very legal system that he's rebuilding. That would be foolish, wouldn't it? Why wouldn't Paul do that? This leads to the context. Because I, by means of the law, I'm dead to it. Why? So that I might live unto God. I am crucified with Christ. So establishing that context, let's first look at what it means to be crucified with Christ. It means first a living union with Jesus Christ. You see? The law that you're dead to cannot bring about a living union with Christ. To bring back legal service is to frustrate the grace of God. Now what does it mean to be united to Christ? If we were to define that throughout the Bible, you see the statement or the phrase over and over, to be in Christ, to be in Christ. Union simply means two things are joined together. It's a statement that expresses our solidarity and our association with Christ by faith through the Spirit whereby all of the saving benefits of Christ are communicated to believers. All of them. Without that union, we get nothing from Christ. No salvation, no benefits, nothing. But through union with Christ... We receive all the fullness of Christ 
Grace for grace, John 1, 16. So this is the foundation of everything that we are as Christians. Because everything that we need, everything is supplied by God through a living, vital union. Where Paul says, I'm crucified. I'm united with Christ Jesus the Lord. Now think of some of the analogies in the Bible that speak of this union. First, Ephesians chapter 5. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh, union. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. So the analogy of a husband being united to a wife is applied there to Jesus Christ and to his church. That's living union with Jesus Christ. Or a vine to the branches in John 15. I am the vine, you are the branches. If you abide in me and I in you, that's union. You shall bring forth much fruit. Because without me, severed from me, you can do nothing. Union with Christ is vital, like your vital organs. Without them, you're a dead person. And if they're weak, you have no energy, you have no strength. Without Christ, we're dead men. And when this union, through faith, is not functioning as it should, we're weak. We can't bring forth fruit. We can't love as we ought. So another analogy is like a vine that's united to a branch. Everything in the branch is coming by means of the vine. And all the fruit, whatever fruit is there, is owing to this union. Another one is a head united to a body. In Ephesians chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, we grow up into Him in all things, even Christ who is our head, from whom the whole body fitly joined and compacted together. See? Now you can live without a hand, a foot, a leg, an arm, but cut off the head and you're, you're dead. There's no life. Like the head is to the body. The whole body is receiving from the head a union, a vital union, a living union from a living person whereby everything the body is is owing to the husband, the vine, the head, a cornerstone that we sang about. Peter would say in 1 Peter chapter 2, to whom coming as into a living stone. This living stone is the, the chief cornerstone. Disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. You also as lively stones, where in the building, united to the cornerstone, are being built up a spiritual house. How? Only by your connection with the cornerstone. Sever that connection. Let that connection get weak. There's no spiritual sacrifices. None. And then another one, and we've got two more here is spoken of as a genetic tie with Adam as our representative. In Romans chapter 5. By the disobedience of one, many became sinners. That's because you were in Adam. When he ate that fruit, guess what? You ate it. In him as your representative. Just like when your congressman votes, you just voted. You did. Because what that congressman voted is yours by representation but also by the obedience of one, many were made 
righteous. So be careful if you say, I I don't want what Adam did for me, then you can't have what Christ did for you. That's the argument, Romans 5. So there's a tie like a representative to constituents in Romans 5. And lastly, the climactic union of John 17 is the Trinitarian Godhood in union with the believer, that they may be one, Father, as we are one, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So Paul here, when he says, I'm crucified with Christ, is speaking of a union with Jesus. That if it doesn't exist, there's no life. And if it does exist, what does that mean? You're dead to the law. The law has no place for being a substitute for Christ in any way in your life. And if it ever does, it'll never produce fruit. It produces the fruit of death. Now, when was Paul united to Christ? Here he uses the perfect tense uh, verb. Uh, Some translations record the past tense here. You can do that with a perfect. Perfect tense is a completed action in the past with an ongoing present tense result. KJV says, I am crucified. Other versions say, I have been crucified. There's liberty with the translators to emphasize the past part of it or the present. And I like the KJV here because the present tense contextually is what Paul is emphasizing. I am crucified with Christ. I live now by faith in the Son of God. Now, there's not a right or wrong issue. Either one can be done. But the KJV translators emphasize the present tense of the perfect because Paul is talking about your life now. But we have to think about the past tense. How is it that Paul has been crucified? This union with Christ spans from eternity to eternity. First, Paul was put in Christ before the foundation of the world. He was chosen in Christ Jesus. So in the mind and purpose and thoughts of God, Paul was forever in Christ. Forever in Christ. And if you're a believer, so were you. From eternity past, as far as you can go back, You have been in Christ in the mind and purpose and thoughts of God. Not not literally, but as far as God thought of Christ forever and eternity, He thought of you being in Him. Then there's being in Christ when He was on the earth and at His crucifixion. When Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, he means when Christ was on the earth, He was in Christ because God was thinking of Him that way. He wasn't consciously there, right? But as far as God's purpose and thoughts, everything Jesus was doing, Paul was doing in Christ. So when Christ died, according to Romans 6, Paul died with him. When Christ went into the tomb, Paul and everyone that's in Christ went into the tomb with him. In the thoughts of God, it was being counted to them in the purpose of God. When Christ arose victoriously righteous, Paul rose with him. Ephesians 2. We've been made to sit together in heavenly places. We've been made to rise together in Christ Jesus. Now when did that happen? At the cross. Paul has been crucified with Christ, which means he was united to Christ in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and his being seated at the right hand of God the Father. In the thoughts and in the purpose of God. But now what Paul means is that he's united in the possession 
of salvation. Being put in Christ in eternity and being in Christ at the cross has to come to the place where you're in Christ in your experience and in your possession. And Paul tells us in the first chapter how that happened for him and every heir of grace. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb to to call me by His grace to reveal Christ in me, to me, through me, to unite me to Christ, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. What happened? You see, the first Adam transferred what he did to Paul when Paul was born the first time. He was in Adam. You were in Adam when Adam ate the fruit as a representative. And then when you were born the first time, all of that transgression was yours in possession. Likewise, in the second Adam, all that he did, righteously, godly, bearing our sin and rising from the dead, became yours in the second birth. When God effectually called you by His grace, He united you to Jesus Christ by faith. So you now have a union with Christ that if it could be severed, you would lose your salvation. But this union is indissoluble. It's eternal. It cannot change. And so what Paul means to be crucified with Christ means he has a living, vital union with Christ that is experienced by faith that produces a radical transformation in his life. Now, Let's look at the statement to be dead through the law. Paul says that has to happen to be united to Christ. That has to happen to live to God. Now this statement is subject to much misunderstanding. Right? In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says, If we be led of the Spirit, we're not under the law. In Romans 6.14 he says, For sin shall not have dominion over you. Why? You're not under the law, but you're under grace. Now, when people are not under law, what happens? Do they sin more or sin less? When a mayor declares we're going to defund law enforcement, what happens? Do people sin more or they sin less? If a mayor were to say, we're not only going to defund law enforcement, they are gone. There will be no law enforcement in this city. We know what happens. People sin more, not less. But the point of Paul's statement is, when you're not under law, beloved, you sin less, not more. When you're not under the law, people actually do less sinning, less sinning than they did when they were under the law. Turn to Romans chapter 7. Now Paul expands upon this idea in a much larger, broader way in Romans, where in Galatians he's giving sort of highlights and points. So the the broader explanation we find in chapters 6, 7, and 8, which we'll focus on chapter 7 in a few verses, where Paul uses this same statement, dead to the law. Why do we need to be dead to the law in being crucified to Christ? Romans chapter 7, verse 4, Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law. There's our statement by the body of Christ, so that you should be married to another. There's union. It means joined. Even to him that was raised from the dead, that's Christ. Why? So that we should bring forth fruit to God. 
If you don't abandon the law, there's no fruit. None. So Paul says, even the law ended its jurisdiction of me. It's like traveling through Alabama and reaching a state line. As soon as you cross the state lines, Alabama jurisdiction is over. That's what Paul's saying. The law, by its very design, has passed off jurisdiction to Christ. The law is powerless to produce fruit. It cannot do it. You must become dead to the law and be united to another, which Paul says, I am, I'm crucified with Christ. He's telling the Galatians, look, if you try to go back to the law, do you see what you're doing? You're cutting off the life flow of the very salvific benefits that come to you that produce grapes on the branches. You're severing yourself or you're falling from grace, Galatians chapter 5. So he's using the arguments to awaken them to what they're doing. The law cannot bring forth fruit. It can't do it. It's impotent. It's powerless. It's like the illustration I read of Donald Gray Barnhouse. He used the illustration. Suppose you're driving down the highway and you come upon an accident and there's a massive truck that's been overturned and there's a man trapped under it. And you're about with half a dozen other guys and you get out and the only place you can try to pick up this truck is with the bumper and you're all there straining, pulling on the bumper and you can't budge it. It's impossible. Then comes along a wrecker with one of those hooks and a winch on it. Now the only place the wrecker can attach to the truck in order to get the person out of the wreckage is the bumper. So what needs to happen? Get out of the way. Just get out of the way so the wrecker can do his work. Now that's the illustration of verse 4. The law gets out of the way. That's what it wants to do. That's what its design is to do when Christ came so that grace can do its work. And what is the work of grace? Fruit to the glory of God. The law is impotent like those young men are impotent to pick up such a heavy weight. But Christ and being united to Christ not only brings justifying righteousness, He brings sanctifying righteousness. And that's one of the ways that the churches were frustrating the grace of God. So you may say, well, I I get that. Nobody can be saved, can be justified by doing something. What about growing in grace? How does that happen? How do you get more holy? Have you ever tried to just implement your own self-improvement program to grow in grace? You're just going to work hard at it? Your moral improvement program, you're going to get some rules, some commandments, some principles, and just start doing them? You could be frustrating the grace of God. You ever been frustrated, just annoyed that you can't achieve something, that something can't change? Do you frustrate the grace of God? No, God is never frustrated. But see, when you try to take up some rule, some command, some principle, some moral improvement in order to, to please God, The pipeline of grace shuts off just like the Keystone XL pipeline. Shut down. Completely shut down. You just set aside the grace of God. No, you may not believe in justification by works, but do you believe in holiness by works? That's not how it happens. How does the fruit of holiness take place? By union to Jesus. Not union to a law. 
or a rule or a commandment or a principle. All those things having their place. It's not how fruit is born. Why? Verse 5. Because when we were in the flesh, the motions or the passions of sins, which were by the law, the law produced passions of sin. And it did work in our members fruit unto death. That's pretty shocking, isn't it? The law actually partners with sin. They partner up to stir up your passions and to do the very thing the law says not to do. I wouldn't have believed it had I not just read it in the Bible. January 20, 1920, midnight. Prohibition took place in the United States. You cannot transport, you cannot sell, you cannot produce alcohol. People dumping barrels down the drain. It's over. Now prior to prohibition, by and large women didn't drink. Alcoholism was not really a big issue, and people drank in moderation. Guess what happened when the law came? Alcoholism was on the rise. Women started drinking. Bootleggers, moonshiners. Why? Was the law bad? Now, you may say that probably wasn't a good idea to pass the law. Maybe it wasn't. But was the law in itself saying, you cannot produce alcohol? Was that evil? Was that wrong? Was that bad? No. Where was the evil? It was in the person. You tell me I can't do something? The passions of sin which were by the law that said, Thou shalt not covet. Paul said, I had not known sin. I had not known lust. But the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Sin revived and I died. What is happening here? The law is designed to stir up your passions to show you you're a sinner. And there's no way you could ever keep the law when the very law itself is producing in you what was already there. It just comes out. So Paul makes the point the law is good, holy, and just. But the sin may appear exceeding sinful by the law so that we would know there is no way you can be justified by keeping the law because every time the law comes, what happens? I want to do the very thing it commands me not to do. So why can't the law bring forth fruit, the fruit of love? Because the law is not designed to do that. It's designed to show you you're an unloving, sinful person. And all it does is bring forth the fruit of death. And the prohibition brought a lot of fruit to death as an illustration. Verse 6, but now we are delivered, we are discharged from the law. Discharged from it. Wherein we were held. How did the law hold us in? With our passions. Our passions. You could never keep the law. It just kept stirring passions. You were captured by the law. Now being delivered from the law, when we were held that we should serve in newness of spirit and not the oldness of the letter. Now the oldness of the letter, what Paul means, letter means something written. Where was the letter written? In the oldness of the Old Testament. It was written in a stone. It was outside the people. 
When it's outside a person, the law produces licentiousness or legalism. That's all it can produce to show you. You can't do it by law. Licentious people are people that say, you're not going to tell me what to do. I'm not trusting in the mercy of God. I know what pleases me, and I'm going to live that way. Mercy can't satisfy me. Those are passions. The legalist says, I'll keep the law. I'll do the law. They reject the mercy of God too. How? Because the passion, what they love, is to be made much of in keeping the law. That's the problem with the churches of Galatia. They want to be made much of by being like the Jews and everybody saying, you're such good people. So the oldness of the letter is the letter written in stone outside of us. What's the newness of the Spirit? That's the new covenant Spirit that comes inside of us. And what does He do? He transforms our passions. He gives us new desires, a new love, and unites us to Jesus so that we bring forth fruit to God. The law is impotent, powerless to bring forth fruit by its own admission, its own testimony in the Bible. He'll tell you that, personifying the law. He's our paedagogus, Galatians chapter 3. He's our schoolmaster, which was a tutor and a governor that was charged with uh, uh, educating young boys until they got to manhood. They couldn't take a step without the tutor. They couldn't even look in the different direction without being told what they could do, when they could get up, when they could eat, when they could go to bed, when they could speak, and when they couldn't speak. The law was that to bring us in union with Jesus Christ so we would come out from under His jurisdiction, get out from under the jurisdiction of the law. If you don't, you're only going to bring forth fruit into death because the law stirs up passions. that are fleshly ones, but Christ stirs up by His grace passions for good, for godliness, for glory, for growth. Now listen to how Paul even says this in Galatians when he says you're not under the law. Look at Galatians again. He's going to get to this later in this book. He's going to tell us the outworkings of union. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm now living by faith. And the outworkings of this union, which is by the Spirit, is fruit unto God. So what is union produced by faith? Fruit unto God, or the fruit of the Spirit. Now listen to what he says in verse 13 of Galatians 5. For brothers, you have been called under freedom or liberty. Only use not liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. For all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So get this. Paul is through the law, dead to the law. For what? That the law might be fulfilled. Where? In you. So the idea of being under the law means you get to sin more. No, being united to Christ means you sin less, less than you did because of that union. And what the law says is, love God and love your neighbor. So being dead to the law means I don't have to obey anymore. doesn't mean that. It means now I have the power 
of obedience by union with Christ that produces the fruit of love. And that's what the law is after. Not for your justification to be right with God. Not even for your sanctification. But the result of being justified by faith and the result of being sanctified by the same faith is that love starts to come. And that's what the law was after. So far be it from us to say dead to the law, not being under the law, means lawlessness. You don't have to obey. No, it means the power for obedience now is present because you're crucified with Christ. And now the whole law is fulfilled in one word, go love your neighbor by loving God. Now notice how Paul connects this with the Spirit. Verse 15, But if you bite and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed one of another. This I say then. Okay. The law ends its jurisdiction, brings you to Christ, so that you may fulfill the law, which is love. Not to be saved. You've been united. You have salvation. And now all the benefits of salvation will be communicated by this union. The opposite of loving is biting, devouring, and destroying one another relationally, which is going to happen in the churches of Galatia if they stay on this pathway. Union doesn't produce that. I want to show you, that's what the law produces. The law produces biting and devouring and relational destruction. When you bring law into your relationships, church, marriage, family, you're going to die start destroying one another. So this I say then, so you don't bite and devour, but you fulfill the law. This I say, walk in the Spirit. What is that? That's union with Christ. The Spirit of Christ is in you. He will send another comforter, another of the same exact kind is the Greek word there in the Gospel of John. So to walk in the Spirit is union with Christ by the Spirit And when you do that, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. There's the passions of the flesh of Romans 7, 5. Verse 17, Because the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these two are contrary one to the other, so that you cannot do the things you would. But if you be led of the spirit, you're not under the law. Now there's our phrase. To be dead to the law, or not to be under the law, are connected. Now let's see the parallel between the two statements. Walking in the Spirit is synonymous with being led of the Spirit. When you're being led by the Spirit of God, which is in you, and you're being led by faith, you have this union. When that union is being experienced by faith, you're walking in the Spirit. And when you're walking in the Spirit, you're fulfilling the law, which is in one word. You are a loving person. And what's the first fruit of the Spirit? Love. What happens when you're under the law? You're gratifying the flesh in verse 16. Walk in the Spirit, you won't gratify the flesh. Be led of the Spirit, you're not under the law. Don't walk in the Spirit, don't be led of the Spirit. You're under the law, and you're gratifying your own flesh. And what's the result? You're biting, and you're devouring, and you're destroying one another. That was Paul's experience of the law, wasn't it? What things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. What was gained to Paul? 
legalism, law. He brought law into every relationship he had. And he destroyed people very physically. You may not be destroying anybody physically. You may be destroying them emotionally because you brought law into a church. And you're trying to affect change by law. You want some change out of those children, right? You bring down the law on those people. What does that produce? Passions of the flesh. Now hear me out. I'm not saying there's no place for commands and rules, but the law is not going to bring the change you want, and we need to understand that. It's not going to bring it in your marriage. It's not going to bring it in your family. It won't bring it in the church with one another. To be under the law is to try to use the law because it's gratifying our flesh, something we want that the law can't give us, and then the result is biting and devouring. And so what do we do in our law service? We make demands of people. We are demanding that they change. We're shaming, we're guilting, we're belittling, and we're judging one another. Because under the law... Our passions are stirred. We want to be superior. We want to be seen as much. So we need to put others in their place. Or we try to use the law to affect change. And rather than just giving commands to children, we, we don't tell them about the gospel. We don't tell them about grace. We don't show them how change comes. We don't show them how sanctification works. We don't show them that a legal standard or moral improvement can do nothing for the heart. But the gospel of grace can. So beloved, if we have biting and devouring and destroying in our lives, whether it's physical or emotional, we likely have come under the law and we're trying to live by law to God for the gratification of our flesh, which is not producing love, it's producing war. War. So we see what Paul means here. To be dead to the law is because the law is impotent. The law is powerless to produce fruit. The only thing that the law does is stir up passions. The law brings us to Christ. The law cannot produce love. The law demands love. So it points us to the person who secured it. Secured our justifying righteousness. Secured our sanctifying righteousness. How? By being in union with Christ. So that now the life that Paul now lives, how does he live it? By faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. A life of faith in Christ is a life whereby the fullness of Christ's love and his benefits begin to come through us like a vine to a branch, like a head to a body, like a cornerstone to another stone. And what happens in the body? that vital union begins to produce the very demand of the law, love God and love your neighbor. Without union, we are powerless. We cannot, we will not. So beloved, let us bring the grace of God rather than frustrating grace in our relationships and our churches like the churches of Galatians. This is where they're going. If they don't listen to Paul's word, there's going to be some carnage going on in those churches. And maybe there already was, and Paul's just kind of subtly pointing it out to them. 
if we try to come under the law, if we try to be alive to the law and use our self-improvement, our moral improvement programs to grow in grace rather than grace itself through faith, it will produce this kind of outcome. So what's the next point I only introduce and we'll close here? Not only is being crucified with Christ being dead to the law, it's being in living union with Christ. We live now by faith in the Son of God. Now that's pretty apparent in the text, but the question is, what does that mean? What does it mean in detail for you to live by faith in the Son of God? Paul says, the old I has died. It's not I. I'm living, but not I. So there's an eye of Paul that's alive, that's the one that's trusting Jesus, and there's an eye of Paul that's dead and has to be killed every day, or there won't be any love that comes from faith in Christ. This faith can be defined as a heart commitment. It is the mind, the thoughts, the will, the affections, a commitment to surrender everything, your life and yourself, to Christ that then produces a radical transformation in holiness. That's what Paul says. And so next Sunday, Lord willing, we'll look at what it means to live by faith so that there is change that takes place in our life. Little by little, change begins to take place. Why? We're crucified with Christ. We're dead to the law. And now, the life that we live, we are living not by works, not by law. We're living by faith of the Son of God who loved you and gave Himself for you for this very end. You may be His and He may be yours. If you haven't trusted Christ, then you're not united to Christ. So we bid you to take up your cross and follow Him today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your...